This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Uh, you're listening to Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Rabbi Sharon Rouse. Uh, she is the founder and senior rabbi of ICAR, a leading-edge Jewish community in Los Angeles. Uh, she has an amazing story and has done some remarkable things. And uh, Phil, why don't you start off with the questioning? And okay. Thank you for coming on and taking the time to speak us with us today, Rabbi. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Rabbi Browse, um, in looking at your website, um, it looked like there was uh, an incredible uh, turning point in your life that led to your becoming a rabbi and creating ECAR um, that took place in Jerusalem. Um, we always like to give our listeners a, 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 a view of who the person we're talking to is, and that seemed like a good place to start. Perhaps you could describe that and its effect on your life. Sure, sure. I'm happy to. So I grew up, like so many American Jews, with a very strong sense of Jewish identity um, and not a very strong context for Jewish religious practice or any idea of Jewish spiritual practice. And so for me, it was much more of an identity issue. It was about, um, it, it, it was really about living in New York and drinking coffee and reading The New Yorker, frankly. Um, but it had also something to do which, with... Which now you can do in L.A. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, but it, it, it actually had, it had to do with values. It had to do with, um, with caring about human dignity and thinking a lot and working toward justice. And this was sort of built into who I was as a person, and I understood that this was somehow connected to Jewish identity, but didn't really understand why. Um, and, and as I tried to enter into the Jewish conversation, more of the established Jewish communal space, I found myself increasingly alienated from institutional Jewish religious environments. And I felt like there was a language and a set of rules that I was not privy to, even though I had spent my whole life as a Jew. So I spent much of the beginning of college really trying to enter into environments where I could learn um, as a Jew about my own tradition and feeling more and more like there wasn't really a place for me. Um, and so, and actually one year, I, I went every single Friday night to a different synagogue in New York City, trying desperately to find a place where I could learn until after almost a full year, I realized this is not what most people do as sophomores in college. They go to clubs and bars. They don't go to synagogue. And I, I would walk out of everyone crying because I felt, I felt invisible. I felt like a fool because I didn't even know the basic, when do you stand up and when do you sit down and why does nobody ever greet you? And, you know, so, so finally one night in my sophomore year, I ended up walking into a synagogue on the Upper West Side of Manhattan called B'nai Jeshurun. And it actually changed my life. And I remember um, before I walked in, I went on this journey, this journey week after week after week with the cute boy who lived across the hall from me in college who happened to who happens to now be my husband um this was kind of our falling in love journey to some extent and um and i said to him before we went in he was gracious enough to go on this journey with me i was really seeking something and i remember saying to him before we walked in this is ridiculous if this one doesn't work i'm done with this jewish journey and we went in that night and it was the early 90s and there was a rabbi in the front of the room who just spent 25 years 
um, in Buenos Aires fighting against disappearances, fighting for human rights, and he started preaching about HIV-AIDS and the way that fear and hatred were going to prevent, were, were going to prevent us from dealing responsibly with the spread of this disease, which he said, if we don't act now in a, in a smart and compassionate way, tens of millions of people, young people, will die to this disease. And he said, every one of us has an obligation as a Jew and a human being to take to the streets and fight for proper resources and education and not to allow fear and hatred to block us from doing it. And I was so shocked because I'd never heard someone speak such a resonant and powerful and relevant message in a religious framework before. And then everyone started to sing, and they got up and danced, and I was just completely stunned. And I turned to, I, so I turned to, to David, my, um, in my, my partner on this journey, my, my now husband, and I said, we, we have to go to Israel because I have to learn something so that I can have this kind of religious and spiritual practice in my life. Um, we set out from there to Israel. I went, I spent junior year abroad there. And one of the transformative moments, which I think is the one that you're referring to, was a moment when after really diving into um, Jewish learning for the first time and Jewish practice, um, <laughs> I had this incredible um, Shabbat that I spent in the old city of Jerusalem. And I realized um, I was, it was a part of a, an outreach program where they were trying to convince young, confused, wandering American Jews that they needed to kind of cast their lot with a certain um, sect of the Jewish people and, and live a certain kind of stringent religious practice. And I realized that I didn't believe anything that they were saying, but that I actually had a sense of the divine in my life, that I actually believed in God. And I also realized in this moment that the people I admired most in the world who were agents of social change, the people who really fought for dignity and for love and for justice, were all people who had faith, too. And it occurred to me that that was my path, that mm -hmm. I hadn't even put the pieces together before, but it, it really was an epiphany when that moment, um, when that moment struck. And I, I, I proclaimed, I remember, I proclaimed, I'm going to be a rabbi. And it had never occurred to me before. That uh -huh. was not my trajectory. Mm. Um, so this was a totally transformative moment for me. Rob, rabbi wow. Ross, let me, let, I wanted to ask you, uh, in, in the United States, uh, Judaism, is generally broken down into the Reformed, uh, the Conservative, and the Orthodox. Um, I, I assume being a progressive, as you seem to be uh, with your organization, ECAR, and the work you're involved with, are most of the people you deal with uh, under the uh, category of what we would call Reform? And what do you think of those distinctions, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox? Is, is that necessary? Is it counterproductive uh, to uh, people living, leading a Jewish life uh, so your thoughts on that? It's a really interesting question. Um, I, I, so I grew up in a reform synagogue. My parents were really Reconstructionist. I fell in love with Judaism in an Orthodox setting, and I went to a conservative seminary <laughs> so, uh -huh. to be ordained. When, we, when I came out of seminary, I realized that, um, that the question of what denomination a person is is really the least interesting Jewish question that I could ask them, that what I really cared about is what kind of human being are you, and how can an engagement with a tradition that's thousands of years old help you be a better human being and help us be better, a better human community in the world. And so it, it frankly doesn't 
um, I, I have, n- I really don't have any any interest in the denominational mm-hmm. divisions. I think they do more to divide than to awaken in people a sense of responsibility and a sense of real connectedness. Um, so when we started our community in Los Angeles called Icar. Um, which we started 12 years ago, I said, I don't want to affiliate with a denomination because I want people from all different backgrounds and practices to feel comfortable here, which means that, um, uh, you know, we have people who will walk two miles to get to services because they won't drive on Mm -hmm. Shabbat morning. Um, on the Sabbath, we also have people who will drive two hours to get to services because they're happy to drive and it doesn't bother them. We have people who keep strictly kosher and we have people who eat bacon maple donuts. And it doesn't bother me one bit. And in fact, I think that the diversity of practice and the diversity of belief is part of the power of real community. So we have people who are real believers who have a sense of the, of the presence of God in their lives. Um, who feel uplifted by God's love every day. And we have people who are, you know, who've been atheists their entire lives and don't want to, don't want to talk about or hear about God at all. And they are sitting and learning Talmud together and they're praying together, which is even more interesting in some ways. So we really decided not to attach ourselves to one particular denom- denominational affiliation, but instead really to open the doors to anybody mm-hmm. who was interested in having a serious conversation about the ways in which this tradition could help transform their lives and, and hopefully our community and our society. I think you should uh, forbid bacon, maple, donuts for health reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking to a kosher vegetarian, so I have a new gravy. But, but look, the idea is that we really wanted to build a non-judgmental space where people from all right. different kinds of practice would be comfortable. And I speak really um, clearly about what my practice is and why it inspires me and how I think it can help um, ch- help open and awaken us to a deeper awareness of our, of our own humanity and of the presence of something greater than us in the world. But I'm not disappointed when people don't share the same practice that I have. I think that's part of the beauty of a really diverse community. Very interesting. Could, let's speak a little bit more of that uh, community, because one of the reasons we contacted you is um, someone mentioned you, and I looked up Ecar, and it, it seemed like a unique place. Tell us what the uh, origin uh, of Ecar was, and how you got it off the ground, and what it means. What, what does I K A R mean? So, we it was the it was the spring of 2004 when we started. And uh, and I really noted the confluence of two trend lines happening um, in the United States and in the American religious community at the time. On one hand, it really felt to me like the world was on fire. And I, I read in the spring of 2004 um, a book by the ch- former chief rabbi of Great Britain, Jonathan Sachs, called The Dignity of Difference, in which he paints two images of the world in the year 2020. And one of them is essentially a new golden age where we've somehow harnessed all of our resources and technology and medicine, and we've stopped the spread of deadly diseases, and there's no more poverty, and we've made it so that every school child has access to the latest information downloadable on the Internet, and we've somehow been able to create peace in the Middle East. And it's the achievement, he says, the beginning of a new golden age. And then he paints a picture of the world in the year 2020, and he says it's the beginning of a new dark age. The latest dirty bomb has just been dropped on Manhattan. He says coordinated terrorist attacks in Paris 
and in Madrid and in London have essentially put tra uh, international travel to a standstill. He said there's a rise of fundamentalist regimes that are committing all kinds of atrocities um, across the Middle East. And he, and he says, um, you know, poverty and climate change and all of these things are wreaking havoc on the world. It really is the beginning of a new dark age. He says each of these scenarios is equally possible, and between them, uh, between them shows us just what's at stake in the way that we engage moving forward. And it, so it was the spring of 2004, and I had a six-month-old baby girl, and I remember walking over to her crib, and my hands were shaking, and I thought, my God, you know, if everything goes right, this kid's going to be applying to college in 2020. Mm -hmm. What is she going to be thinking about when she applies? Is she going to be wondering where am I least likely to be a victim of a terrorist attack? Or is she going to be thinking where can I contribute my intellectual, whatever intellectual capacity I have to helping bring about this global transformation toward peace and justice and human dignity? And I realized we had to do something because the second trend line, at the same time that I felt this sense of urgency, um, about where the state of the world was that there is a, uh, a massive disaffection going on in all established religion, religious communities in America, but it especially hit the Jewish community very hard. And we've spent the last 10, 20 years really trying to grapple with why is it that so many young people are defecting from our institutional spaces, from our, establish, from our establishment spaces, and so, uh, and so what you see, and we've seen this in study after study, is that, there, that while many Jews feel a strong sense of connectedness to Jewish identity, they don't feel connected to Judaism as a religion, and they don't feel connected to, Jew, to synagogue, and they don't feel connected to Jewish federations or other organizations necessarily. And so what I felt was happening in this particular moment was, on one hand, Jews are less and less involved in a Jewish conversation, and and the world desperately needs a message of dignity and peace and healing and compassion and empathy. And so what if we could create a space that was outside the denominational bo boxes that would play by a different set of rules that would actually be about getting back to the heart of the matter, to the essence of what it means to really be a human being in the world? What if we could reclaim the prophetic voice of our tradition, which too often has been either silenced or put to the side or treated like it was naive or irrelevant or peripheral? And so so ikar actually means the essence. The, it's the Hebrew word for the essence or the, or the heart of the thing. And what we were really trying to do was create a conversation that would talk once again about what the core message of this tradition is. And there's a reason why Judaism has lasted for thousands of years, really against all odds. And I think it's because there's incredibly profound and important wisdom in this tradition that I think the world, uh, the, the world and we could really learn from. Mm -hmm. And so the question for me was, how do we bring, how do we translate the powerful ideas and rituals and practices from a tradition um, of, that's thousands of years old into a language that, that young people and older people, that people alive in the world today could actually grab onto and, um, and wrestle with and grow from. Let me, let me ask you along those lines, what if somebody comes to you uh, at ECAR and, uh, and, and, and they say, why, maybe they're Jewish, you know, let's say they're Jewish, and they say, why Judaism? Why not Catholicism? Why not Hinduism? Why not Buddhism? I, I feel like I get a lot from each one. Why should I have a Jewish identity? Why should I follow any of these practices? Or if a woman came to you and said, uh, you know, uh, uh, my husband kind of is an atheist, uh, 
I have a Jewish identity. Uh, I love what you're doing. I'm learning from this. My kids seem to be indifferent to it. Would you encourage them, her, to encourage them to become uh, more Jewish? Uh, what is the rationale for it, and how do you counsel people? So it's a really good question. I, I mean, I, I believe that there's wisdom in all of our faith traditions, and that, um, and in some ways, there. Um, there are very key and important elements of our traditions that really are, are in great alignment with each other. And so if somebody comes to me saying, you know, I was raised as a Lutheran, why, you know, why should I find wisdom from the Jewish tradition? I would say, you know, you should go to church. <laughs> like I, I would encourage you to find a pastor who can help you connect to your own tradition and the tradition of your people. At the same time, I, do, I mean, I do believe that there, is, there are universal values that come out of this particular past. Um, and ultimately, am I a universalist or a particularist? I believe that the best uh, way for me to learn how to be a human being in the world is to follow this particular path, which helps awaken me to my own humanity and to the humanity in others. That doesn't mean that this particular path is the only way to that sort of universal understanding or universal vision. And so what I'm interested in is helping people find, uh, helping people wake up, first of all, mm -hmm. because, you know, as, <laughs> as recently I was just re reviewing, reviewing um, Martin Luther King's commencement address that he gave at Oberlin years ago. And he shares the story of Rip Van Winkle from, um, and he says it's so. Um, he's from the the Washington Irving story about Rip Van Winkle who falls asleep for twenty right. years, and he says it's a story everybody knows, but everybody takes the wrong message from it. They think the message is, isn't it incredible that the guy sleeps for 20 years, but he says, actually, what's amazing about the story isn't that he had such a long sleep. It's that when he went up into the inn to go to sleep, there was a picture of King George III um, of, of England on the wall. And when he woke up 20 years later, it was George Washington who was on the wall. And, and so what it means is that he slept through the revolution. He's, and, the, and King says, you know, and this is, what is this, 1965, and, and King says the problem is people sleeping through the revolution. We have to wake up. The world is changing. The world is shaking. It, we're in tremors right now because we're in a massive moment of recalibration and transition around the world of ideology, of practice, of engagement, and we don't want to sleep through the revolution. So my primary objective as a religious leader is to help wake people up and and ask us to consider who are we who do we want to be in the world what kind of world do we dream is possible and what are we doing to mm -hmm. help make that movement occur some people um, I find myself in deep alignment with people of other faith traditions who feel similarly compelled um, and people who don't have faith at all who feel similarly compelled to address those questions but for me, the strength from that comes from the Jewish tradition. And I think that for many Jews, um, we, the tradition is there, but we, haven't, we, we don't dive into it because we don't expect that we're going to find either spiritual challenge or inspiration um, or intellectual challenge from this tradition because that's not the way we were, that's not the way we were taught in religious school. Mm. And so in a way, we, um, we have this sort of pediatric understanding of what Judaism is because most of our Jewish education for American Jews ended right after Bar Bat Mitzvah when we were 13. 
And so then we have very adult engagement with other religious and faith traditions because we read books as grown-ups and they're very compelling ideas. But Judaism is sort of has a stunted growth in our, in our memory. And so what I'm trying to do is, is awaken a conversation in the Jewish community and among others outside the Jewish community who are simply interested in this about what a more grown-up engagement mm-hmm. with this tradition could actually look like and feel like. Very, very, well, very well put, yep. Yes, thank you. Um, I I would like to look at it a little historically, if I can, if we can. Um, uh, In my experience, there's a a trend towards secularism in the Jewish world that my parents raised me in. And um, at the same time, a, a a disproportionate number of Jews that, this is based on my own research, uh, end up in either Hindu or Buddhist-oriented or the camps or the spiritual but not religious camp or are leading strictly secular lives, whether they identify as Jews or not. Why did that occur historically? And why did things come to the point where people like you felt the need for um, what you call reclaiming um, spiritual and, and religious tradition. Well, and, I mean, there are sociological um, arguments made about how this came to be in the United States. A lot of it has to do with the very fierce yearning of um, Jewish immigrants to America to be American. They wanted to. Be, there was there's a, a trend of Americanization and Protestantization. So our synagogues in the early 20th century were designed to look like churches, and our spiritual and, and our um, our worship services. Um, were were designed to look and feel not so different. They were just the Jewish alternative to the church that was down the street. Um, it was very important to my grandparents' generation to fit in in America. They didn't want to be known as, you know, this. The, they didn't want to be other here. And so the synagogue really served the purpose of um, of being a kind of collective communal environment for Jews in America who really weren't allowed into a lot of other American spaces. For example, in my town that I grew up in in New Jersey, um, there were three country clubs. Two of them had a no blacks, no Jews policy through, through the, throughout the time that I was in high school. So throughout the late 80s, this was the case. So this is a town that was at that time 40% Jewish, and two of the three country clubs wouldn't allow blacks or Jews into them. And so there's an idea that synagogue in some way became the Jewish country club. It became the place where Jews would go to do the things that people did in country clubs, get together, schmooze, you know, talk politics. And it had a, slight, it had a Jewish flavor, but it wasn't dramatically different from whatever was happening either in the country club or the church down the street. Except for the tennis. <laughs> right. Well, now, you know, there are some synagogues that actually have tennis courts and swimming pools, too, because of this trend line. And so, um, and, and, and I think what happened is in some, and there was, I think, a deep embarrassment among many American Jewish immigrants of those of our brothers and sisters who held on to the tradition and who really stubbornly held the, um, the practice of Shabbat. There was actually a proposal in the late 1800s among many of the um, earliest Jews to come to this country that they proposed moving Shabbat 
to Sunday mm. so that we could align better as Americans with what was normative religious practice here. And in so doing, I think they did a tremendous amount of damage. Um, and, it, you know, th- this, is, this is really not, on- this is not only in the reform movement. I think that this happened in all of the non-Orthodox um, spaces in, in America, that what they did was they ended up stripping away um, some of the really core, uh, unique, magnificent elements of this thousands-year-old tradition because we didn't want to be different. And now you have a generation, two generations later, where we want to be different, where America now celebrates diversity and celebrates identity in a different way than it did before. And you see um, in, the, in the Pew study that came out in 2013, something like 94% of American Jews express pride in their Jewish identity. They want to be attached to an identity that's different from just the broader American identity. Um, and so, but now when they go to synagogue to say, I want to feel Jewish, what do I find there? Either they feel very alienated because they don't know the rules, um, like I, like I did when I w- went into so many synagogues, or, uh, it just feels bland and uninteresting to them because it, in some ways it sort of stripped away some of the majesty and the power and the unique beauty of Judaism. And then they go into other religious environments where they didn't go through that kind of con- contortion um, in order to try to be very American, and it just feels more real. It feels mm-hmm. more authentic. And so part of what we're trying to do is give people back their own inheritance and say, you can actually find power here, too. Um, you, can, you can pray in a Jewish environment and feel deeply connected um, to, to, your, to spiritual depth, to beauty, to pain and loss and longing, if you ask, um, which I, I often ask um, when I'm doing learning with people, I ask them about the most powerful spiritual experience that they've ever had. And everybody has had something. Everyone has had a moment that just sort of knocks you off your feet because you feel an awakening of the inner life and you feel like there's some kind of deeper connectedness to other people, to the universe. Everybody has something. And then if you ask them, when have you had a moment of spiritual depth in a synagogue, they go silent. Mm -hmm. Because most people don't, they're capable of spiritual connectedness, but they do not connect it to religious life and religious space and religious practice. And part part of what I believe very strongly is that religion is just the container to hold the spiritual being that sits at the core. And we create this entire scaffolding of religion in order to create the space for holy moments. But at some point, we've become so consumed with the scaffolding that we've completely forgotten to pay attention to what's at the heart of the thing. Mm -hmm. And so this is about bringing those two worlds back together and helping awaken within people that sense of possibility and connectedness and soul, even in a religious environment or on a certain day on the calendar or in a certain kind of space or with a certain kind of liturgy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rabbi Brous, I I, I wanted to ask you... uh, uh, in all the major religions, there's an element of sexism. Uh, h- how have you dealt with it, and how much have you encountered <coughs> in, in regard to a sexist attitude uh, about being a woman rabbi? Um, this is a, a very old patriarchal tradition. That is my tradition. Um, I, well, all, I the major remember... religion, all the major religions are old and patriarchal. Uh, as well, I think they, 
this is a problem across the board, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah yes, I know. Um, I remember first my my fight to get into this religious space was it was a battle. I, I mean, I felt after my after my awakening, after that epiphanous moment in Jerusalem, I hungered for I, I, I hungered for a relationship with. Um, with Jewish texts and with Jewish tradition, that traditionally there haven't been many women in. And and so in that kind of relationship, what I really wanted was to study Talmud, and I wanted to study Talmud 14 hours a day. And there aren't many environments where they engage in really serious Jewish study and learning, particularly there weren't, you know, 20 years ago. Um, there are more now, thankfully, both in Israel and here. Um, but I... I really wanted to, I wanted to learn and I wanted to be in real relationship with these rabbinic voices. And I remember the moment when I realized that this was a tradition that was written by men, for men, and was transmitted through men for Mm -hmm. thousands of years. And then here I was, this young woman, you know, in the 90s, sitting and learning these texts, realizing that, that my that that my voice was not represented here. And at some point for me, and this was a painful journey and realization, um, you know, I, I remember I, I used to have this image that there was this incredible party and they forgot to invite me. <laughs> and I knew I was supposed to be there, but I didn't get the invite. And so I showed up anyway and knocked on the door and they looked through the window and said, nope, you weren't on the invite list. And I started casing the house, you know, walking around and trying to see if there was, you know, a back entrance and eventually trying to slip in through one of the windows, which didn't exactly fit me, and getting inside realizing nobody in there wanted me there. I mean, that's the way I think it feels as a woman to, to try to, for men, and, and I, I have, I've shared this image with other women who have similarly struggled, and it resonates because I think many of us feel that our voices have not been represented. For me, I mean, look, you have a couple of choices when you have that realization. A sane person would walk away and say, you know, okay, to hell with it then, this isn't for me. Um, what I did was the opposite. I mean, I felt a kind of sacred obligation to put my voice into the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want it to be the case that we would read some of these words written 2,000 years ago by men, for men, transmitted through men, without having my commentary on the sideline mm-hmm. and without lifting up and amplifying the voices of other women who also wanted to have their 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 position um, articulated and transmitted on the side of this page as well. But, and well, so yeah. this has been... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say good for you. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and uh, undoubtedly this goes on in other religions and it's a battle that's being waged and uh, all major religions will benefit from it. And I think, you know, the, having your perspective, the perspective of women is only going to add to these traditions. So uh, I, I congratulate you on what you're doing and I'm sure it's not always easy. Thank you. Phil, we have time for one more, more question. Why don't you go ahead? Uh, wow. Uh, there's so much I'd like to ask. Um, Rabbi, one of the um, statements on the mission 
of ICAR is uh, to um, reclaim spiritual and religious practice in a way that's accessible, challenging, and transformative. Can you give us a thumbnail of the kind of spiritual practice you're referring to and what you have uh, emphasized and discovered uh, and, and whether you've drawn from the more esoteric, uh, mystical branches of Judaism? Sure. So I... W- Part of what my focus has been, especially the last couple of years, is helping people get back to the basics. And so um, really looking at very basic practices like dietary restrictions and Shabbat practice and helping people access how these ancient laws and restrictions could actually be the beginning of a profound spiritual journey. And so, um, so a couple of years ago, we started a series called Get Unstuck. It was Experiments in Spiritual Mobility. And I realized that a lot of, a lot of religious leaders, a lot of rabbis fret over their congregants not taking seriously religious practice. And, you know, f- there are many famous sermons that have been given about rabbis berating their congregation for not, uh, for not taking the halakha or the law seriously enough, for not taking mitzvot, uh, command- commandments seriously enough. What I decided that we should do instead is help invite people into an, uh, a series of experiments uh, that might grow their spiritual life. And I wanted to do it with the basics. So what we did was, um, for example, we invited people into the practice of keeping kosher as an experiment for a month. So we would do one-month experiments on all different kinds of practices. So for one month, experiment with mindfulness around eating that happens to align, because people are very interested in bringing mindfulness to eating, especially in Los Angeles, (laughs) Um, but that happens to align with with. 2,000, 3,000-year-old dietary practices. And see what happens if you bring that kind of attention and awareness into the food that you put on your plate and then the food that you put in your mouth. Bring a practice of gratitude into the experience of eating. See if you can elevate the most mundane act, like pulling a piece of chocolate out of your drawer in the middle of a meeting, and which I do all the time, into a holy moment. Right? Can the most mundane act of eating? Can you find holiness in it? Um, can, if you recite a blessing of thanks before, what could you awaken? And so the practices that we were drawing from were ancient. The, the, the particular words of blessing are ancient words. And the idea of distinguishing between milk and meat on the plate, um, you know, not having them on the same plate, thinking about what we're eating and how we're eating, were very, these are very ancient ideas, but we spoke about them in a way that felt very new and and fresh and different for people. Um, And so the idea is to really help people reclaim reclaim this set of traditions as also a spiritual path, as a, as a set of spiritual practices, because we just don't often think about Jewish dietary laws as a spiritual practice. It feels more like a set of restrictions, um, which people might object to because they don't like the way the food tastes, or they might object to because they think Jews have traditionally done this in order to avoid um, eating with non-Jews. I mean, there are all kinds of there are all kinds of ways in which we've attached meaning to this that has nothing to do with this could actually elevate you and help you experience holiness 
in even the most mundane moments. And so I wanted to help people reclaim some of what I think is the, is the essence of the thing. Right. Well, Rabbi, good. thank you so very much for your time. And uh, I don't always do this, but I want to ask you to uh, uh, promise you'll come back on our show sometime because I feel that uh, we have a lot more that we'd like to cover with you. So uh, that's a request. I'd be honored. Thank you. <laughs> Great. And uh, again, our guest today has been Rabbi Sharon Brous, founder and senior rabbi at ECAR, which is based in Los Angeles. Uh, we'll post up your website and information, and I'm sure there's folks listening in who are in the Los Angeles area who would like to uh, attend your services and find out more about you. So we'll make sure we get all of that information up. Uh, Phil? Yeah, yeah it, uh, we should just mention it's ikar-la.org if they want to find out more about Rabbi Brous and her work. Um, I want to thank you very much for coming on. I'm very glad uh, someone told me about you and your work. It's been very illuminating. And frankly, if somebody like you existed in my neighborhood 60 or so years ago, I might have attended a synagogue. No, it might have been Rabbi Goldberg. <laughs> uh. <laughs> thank you so much. It's really been an honor and a pleasure. Thanks.